Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is July 25th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Heads Won't Roll, Pre-Hospital Cervical Spine Immobilization. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He is an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor at the University of Calgary. He's also an avid FOMED supporter and producer through various online outlets, including being on the SGM faculty. Welcome back to the SGM, Chris. Thanks very much, Ken. Well, you know what? It, I have to say, I am so sad you missed the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning party. And your mission, should you choose to accept it, was to attend the party. And, you know, we inflated this 16-foot outdoor movie screen, and we watched the original 1996 Mission Impossible movie. And then the next day, we went to see MI7, Dead Reckoning Part 1, on an IMAX screen. Finished up the party, sitting on red chairs with an outdoor fire, singing 80s songs, of course, and making some schmores. Yeah, I'm so sad to have missed that one. Uh, last year's Top Gun 2 party was awesome, and you and Barb were such great hosts. Uh, what was the best part of the weekend for you? Oh, best part for me was uh, seeing some old friends, and I'm using the term old as in I've known them for a while. Not that they're old, like Dr. Brian Goldman and, and Anya, um, who I'd not seen in a while. And then, you know what? I got to make some new friends in real life, like Steve and Atul. So it was really great. But, you know, people don't want to hear about all my epic parties. They want to hear about some evidence-based medicine. So why don't you give us a case? Let's do it. So I've got a 42-year-old who is struck in the face by a slowly moving I-beam at work, Aleph Fugitive. He has a brief loss of consciousness and then awakens and is ambulatory on scene. EMS is called and on arrival, the patient is walking but has obvious facial trauma and is complaining of some neck pain. He has midline neck tenderness but no limb numbness or paresthesias. As an EMS crew member, you are tasked with deciding what method of spinal motion restriction to use. Well, thanks for setting the table for us. We have covered head injuries, including concussions, multiple times on the SGEM. And this has looked at the Canadian CT head rules, but we've also covered concussions. Yes, we have. And another core element of emergency department and pre-hospital care is the assessment for potential spine injuries. Patient care and positioning has evolved over time. Previously, routine spinal mobilization was with a C-spine collar, placement on a long rigid backboard and straps or head blocks. Yeah, and like you said, over time, this has evolved into spinal motion restriction or SMR with more variable use of cervical collars, patient positioning, and accessories such as head rolls and tape. This has happened due to the recognition of some of the adverse events of immobilization, as well as limitations to its benefits. Yeah, the role of the cervical collar itself varies by jurisdiction, and it's not entirely clear which devices and procedures are most effective at reducing potentially harmful spinal motion. Existing research on SMR confirms decreases in the use of long backboards and increases in collar-only treatment. Some of this research has observed substantial undertreatment among patients who met criteria for precautions, as well as some patients with confirmed injuries who received no treatment from EMS. Well, Chris, I've been in a spine board before with a C collar on, 
And I'll, I'll tell you, you know, if you don't have pain in the neck going into that, oh, you do coming out of it because it is not comfortable. But there has been some other studies that have observed no increase in the diagnosis of cervical spine injuries. However, variable practices and the possibility of patients not receiving appropriate treatment remains a concern. In order for standards for acute management of spinal injuries to progress, we must optimize patient protection while at the same time limiting harms. So Chris, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast? Yeah, we're going to try and answer the question, how has the rate of pre-hospital spinal immobilization slash spinal motion restriction changed from 2009 to 2020? And give us a reference. McDonald et al., Patterns of Change in Pre-Hospital Spinal Motion Restriction, a Retrospective Database Review from Academic Emergency Medicine, July 2023. Ooh, wait a minute. We're recording this in July. That must mean this is a hot off the press. Hot off the press. All right, let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? EMS patients with traumatic injuries. And they excluded no one. Not prisoners, not pregnant people, no one. What was the intervention? Spinal immobilization slash spinal motion restriction. And what were they comparing it to? So this is a retrospective review and included several changes over time. Thus, the comparison was the change in rate over time of spinal motion restriction. Yeah, and so there were a couple of changes over time. One happened in 2009, then again in 2012 and 2014, and finally in 2016. I'll put those details in the show notes. How about the outcome? What was the primary outcome? The primary outcome was the rate of spinal immobilization or spinal motion restriction. And how about secondary outcomes? Rates of splinting and wound care as proxy measures of the incidence of trauma care over time. Yeah, and they also had patient and practice-related factors associated with potential changes over time. Patient-related factors included the age of the patient, the sex of the patient, the acuity of the trauma, mechanism of injury, and indications for treatment. And some practice-related factors included cervical collar size, patient positioning, the proportion of collar-only use, and the rate of treatment of penetrating trauma. So what type of study are we talking about? We are talking about a retrospective database review. And I already spilled the beans that this is a hot off the press, so we're pleased to have the lead author on the show. Neil McDonald is an advanced care paramedic in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where he works as a training officer and research coordinator for the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service. He also holds a PhD in Applied Health Sciences and a cross-appointment as a lecturer in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Roddy Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Welcome to the SGEM, Neil. Thanks very much for the invitation, Ken. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for joining us, Neil. It's great to have a pre-hospital medicine expert on the show, and I'm particularly curious about your thoughts on spinal immobilization, as it's definitely changed even in the short time I've been in practice. Can you tell us a bit more about your EMS background and how you became involved in Winnipeg EMS and this project? For sure. So years ago, I served as a medical technician in the Canadian Forces, and I've always had an interest in medical care in remote and wilderness environments. 
On this topic, I was strongly influenced by some really progressive clinicians who were working on protocols for spine injuries in wilderness settings back in the 1990s and early 2000s. When I came to Winnipeg about 15 years ago, I wanted to look at this from the perspective of urban EMS and was fortunate to connect with my co-authors, Dr. Rob Price and Dr. Dean Krelars, who have expertise in biomechanics. We did quite a lot of work documenting head and neck motion of trauma patients while in spinal mobilization, including measurements of actual patients in the field. And this work evolved into my PhD thesis, which is where the current study comes from. So I guess I've always been fascinated by this topic, both for its importance to patients and for the relationship between evidence and practice change. Well, Neil, I think you left out one of the most important things to your background, and that is your love of the best musical and pop culture era. Well, that can, of course, would be the 1980s, and I can't get enough. Yeah, baby. All right. So why don't you give the conclusions that you and your co-authors came up with? This study shows decreasing SI slash SMR treatment and changing patient and practice characteristics. These patterns of care cannot be attributed solely to formal protocol changes, and similar patterns and their possible explanations should be investigated elsewhere. Well, thank you, Neil. Sit back. Oh, do a little stretching. And Chris and I will go through the checklist and the key results from your study, and then we're bringing you back, and we are going to pepper you with some nerdy questions. Are you prepared? Always prepared, Ken. Oh, I love it when people are ready to talk nerdy to me. All right, Chris. So quality checklist for observational studies. Did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did. Do you think the authors used an appropriate method to answer their question? They did. How was the recruitment? Was it in an acceptable way? Yes, it was. Did they accurately measure the exposure to minimize bias? Yes. Same question on the outcome. Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. And do you think the authors identified all important confounding factors? For this one, I'd say no. Uh, There's a confounding factor in individual paramedic attitude towards spinal immobilization. And also, they mentioned that these patterns of change cannot be explained solely by formal protocol changes. So there are likely unrecognized confounders. This is one of the major limitations of a retrospective observational trial in general, though. Yeah, there's always unmeasured confounders that you cannot control for in an observational study. And different clinicians have different risk tolerances. So I wouldn't be surprised if paramedics had different risk tolerances and attitudes towards whether or not they were going to mobilize a patient. How about the follow-up of subjects? Was it complete enough? It was. How precise were the results? For the reported statistics, confidence intervals were narrow and thus precise. Do you believe the results? I do. Can these results be applied to the local population? This is a hard one. I'd say likely in Canada they can be applied. Um, I would be unsure about the external validity of the United States, worldwide, etc., especially because patterns of spinal immobilization and types of spinal immobilization are known to be quite variable. And do you think the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes, they do. And the 12th and final question, where did they come up with the money for this study? The University of Manitoba Pamela Hardesty Graduate Fellowship. All right, that's the checklist. Let's get into the results. 
a total of almost 26,000 patients were involved in this study. Now, they excluded just over 800 due to incomplete information. The median age was 40 years of age. 58% of the patients were male and 20% were classified as high acuity. Chris, what was the key result? The key result was the rate of SI slash SMR decreased significantly in the 2009 to 2012 and 2012 to 2016 time periods, but not in the 2016 to 2020 time period. Okay, so give us the primary outcome. Primary outcome was the rate of spinal immobilization slash spinal motion restriction. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to describe this. So what we'll do is we'll put a graph from their study in the show notes so you can actually see the trends and changes over time. Now, it should be noted that in July 2012, paramedics were required to record the indication for SISMR in all cases. The change was associated with a significant increase in the rate of SISMR of 5.8 treatments per 100 trauma calls. Then, this decreased over time until the 2016 protocol change. Yeah, and the 2016 protocol change was to allow caller-only treatment. Interestingly, this was not associated with a significant change in the rate of SI slash SMR between 2016 and the final time period. Now, we did mention there were some secondary outcomes. Uh, neither wound care nor splinting showed any substantial changes over the study period. Another was that patient characteristics such as age and sex did not change significantly over time. Uh, the proportion of female patients over age 65 decreased by about 3% per year. And a significantly higher proportion were high acuity over time, increasing from 11% in 2009 to 31% in 2020, an average annual percent change of just under 10%. And there were some small decreases in the proportion of falls, motor vehicle collisions, and assaults over the study period with corresponding increases in non-reporting. Regarding collar size, quote-unquote no-neck collars were used more frequently than any other size at 65%, but their use decreased over time by about 4% per year until 2020. This corresponded to a decrease in short collars and an increase in regular and tall size collars. All right, we did talk about protocol changes. Now, prior to the protocol change in 2016, all patients, all of them were treated with a collar and a board. And then immediately after that change in 2016, it jumped up to almost 50%. So 47% of eligible patients were treated with only a cervical collar. Now, this did increase by an average of 6% per year, rising to a total of 60% treated with only a cervical collar by 2020. Is that accurate, Neil? Yes, that, that is. Okay, those are the results. Now, let's talk nerdy. We have how many questions, Chris? Do you think we have one, two, three, four, five? How many questions do you think I have? I have a sneaking suspicion it could be five. <laughs> you are correct, sir. Um, these will be in addition to the usual comments that we have about retrospective studies and unmeasured confounders, which we already mentioned. So let's get right into it. Nerdy point number one, Neil, reporting data. How do you think the lack of mechanism of injury in the reporting data, and it was more than a third, 
How much do you think that can affect the results? Well, Ken, I'm always happy to talk nerdy. And without doubt, the proportion of MOIs that were not reported decreases our confidence in results related to the outcome. We noted this in the limitations and acknowledged that it would be difficult to draw any specific conclusions or base any practice changes on these data. However, secondary outcomes are useful for generating future hypotheses, and we think these results, even with their limitations, raise a few interesting questions. So first, in relation to the existing literature, we see some differences in the relative proportions of the major groups of mechanisms of injury. These are typically motor vehicle accidents, falls, and assaults. Historically, we used to see, and in some areas we still see, MVAs as the leading cause of injuries or the need for treatment. In other areas, and in conjunction with aging populations, we also see falls as a roughly equal or larger contributor. Now, in our study, we saw similar proportions of falls and MVAs with assaults coming in third. We don't know whether our missing results are missing completely at random, which would preserve these proportions, or whether there's some bias in the way our paramedics record or don't record mechanisms. So we don't make too much of the results, in the, and we included detailed reporting as a supplemental file. But in general, we think the case mix of MOIs, and particularly how they change over time, could influence future treatment and training, so they should be tracked. So this raises a second question, which is how to encourage more complete reporting. The rate of unreported MOIs in our study was high, but in the middle of the range of some of the similar literature. In our service, the MOI is not a mandatory reporting field, so there's the possibility of forcing paramedics to record it. At the same time, and as we saw with the documentation change in the study period, there can be unintended consequences from adding documentation requirements. And we'd want to think about the best way to do that while ensuring the needs of the practitioners in the clinical environment remain the top priority. So for clarification, and because we do have listeners who are French, I just want to point out when you say MOI, you're not talking about moi or me, you're talking about mechanism of injury. Oui, bien sûr. Ah, très bien. All right, Chris, number two. So you kind of touched on this already, Neil. Um, one of the big questions from this study is why was there such a big decrease in SI slash SMR over time that cannot be explained by protocol changes alone? And what questions do you think future studies need to ask to identify the reason for this drop? Well, thanks, Chris. I think this was a really fascinating result and probably a measure of how nerdy I am that I was really excited by it. I can't think of another core area of practice that used to be so ingrained, but has changed so dramatically over time. So I think there are lots of potential influences and questions we could ask. But as you mentioned in your appraisal checklist, the attitudes and beliefs of paramedics are the most likely unmeasured confounder. I think this might appear in many ways, whether it's individual beliefs or the working habits among pairs or crewmates or something in how paramedics have been trained or in how changes have been implemented, but they all come down to how practitioners make decisions. I should add that we've completed a companion study that asked paramedics about their attitudes towards spinal motion restriction here in Winnipeg. That's another article, but the highlights are that the paramedics surveyed report that spinal motion restriction is seen as less important than in the past, and that they are treating fewer patients than before. Respondents also signaled that while they followed their local protocols, they were broadly skeptical about the value and effectiveness of SMR in general. And so while these results are drawn from our location, 
They highlight how the attitudes and understanding of frontline staff in any context are essential factors in determining how policies and procedures are implemented. As standards for SMR continue to evolve across jurisdictions, it's important for those of us working in knowledge translation and implementation science to keep these attitudes in mind. I, I like how they're skeptical of anything they've learned, just like the people who listen to this podcast. Um, but also, it, there are just so many. There are just so many factors along the way, like you mentioned, like training, how you work, who you work with, etc., that could affect this. That it, it would be very hard to keep uh, consistency, just like it would be in you know nursing and being a physician and every other step of medical care, really. Hundred percent. Well, Neil, it seemed like you threw out the challenge about, you know, nerdiness. So challenge accepted, because my third nerdy point is about multiple statistical analysis tools. People know that I think the method section, it is the best section of any paper. And so in this method section, you describe several tools to interrogate your data for its validity. Can you comment on the need for each of these tools? For sure, Ken. We had a lot of fun writing the method section of this paper. So to start out, our research question emphasized the need to look at spinal mobilization slash spinal motion restriction over the time frame of practice change to understand how these changes have or have not been adopted into routine care. We could have done this with a before and after study. These are relatively easy to design, but are prone to bias. As an alternative, an interrupted time series can account for many of the limitations in before and after studies, mostly by incorporating and quantifying underlying trends in the data. An interrupted time series is one of the most robust observational designs and can be considered quasi-experimental. In some cases, it can even be considered an acceptable approach when a randomized controlled trial is impossible. Given our question and the available data, which was an unbroken record of an intervention with evenly distributed time intervals, an interrupted time series was a natural choice. I should also point out that an ITS, which is the interrupted time series, can be bolstered by the use of a control series, whether that's internal or external. A control series would be included for the same duration of analysis, and all effect estimates would be calculated using the control as a baseline. For a variety of reasons, we determined that a control wouldn't be an improvement in our case, but we did include the other trauma treatments, wound care and splinting, as comparisons. So these functioned in a similar way to a control, and the results helped demonstrate that while the rate of SI slash SMR went down over time, other trauma treatments were essentially stable, allowing us to rule out some widespread decrease in overall trauma as the reason for the change in spinal care. Well, I could talk methodology all day long with you, Neil, but I can predict the number of listeners dropping off quickly because not everybody loves the method section as much as you and I. So Chris, what's number four? Before I go to number four, I'm gonna say one more thing about methods. If there's one thing you ever learned from the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, it's that the method section is critically important to the paper and probably the most important part of the paper that you don't get taught when you're in residency. So you should go back and read the methods because that's what really matters. And then you can read the conclusions and all the results and everything else. That's where the gold is, Jerry. The, the gold is in the methods. My fourth question, Neil, is about the size and types of collars. So there was a lot of discussion on collar sizes, no neck, short neck, regular, tall, and their types changing over time. And 
we, well, I for sure, was a bit unclear from the study how these changes were decided upon and what this reflects. So we decided on these based on the available data and wanting to understand practice characteristics in as much detail as possible. That said, the number of outcomes reflects a deeply nerdy part of our analysis. But simply put, for paramedics and anyone responsible for applying a cervical collar, there's a lot of discussion about sizing. This makes sense, and at extremes, we all understand the need to size our equipment to our patients. However, where collars are still used, there's still a lot of emphasis on sizing them properly. But I haven't been aware of any study that had documented sizing in actual use. And as I'm sure we'll touch on later, there's extremely limited evidence for collars in general, let alone evidence for one collar that might be millimeters smaller or larger than another. So as a practicing paramedic and someone who works in training, I felt it was important to dig into this. And I've got to say, I was really excited to be able to document these sizes, especially the reliance on the smallest size, the no-neck, over time. When coupled with our survey work, we saw signs that paramedics quite consciously were undersizing collars in order to minimize their known and observed adverse effects, and that there was a nuanced consideration of working within protocol for the benefit of individual patients. This is deep in the weeds of frontline practice, but it gives us an important starting point when it comes time to consider next steps and future guideline revisions, a starting point we wouldn't have if we didn't look into some of these details. Well, when discussing size, this leads right into the fifth and final question. Does it really matter? I mean, where is the high quality evidence that SI slash SMR provides a net patient-oriented outcome, or a poo. I'm specifically interested in C-spine collars. Those claiming that these devices, quote-unquote, work, have the burden of proof to provide evidence to support their position. And this has been debated in the pages of AEM, with a couple of doctors recently giving it a code yellow, or uncertainty, for their NNT blog based upon the Cochrane Systematic Review published in 2001. In contrast, a couple other doctors argued it is not yet time to abandon cervical collars in blunt trauma patients. So, Neil, we have an expert here. Where do you stand on the issue? Well, Ken, first of all, the commentaries you cite are a really good example of differing opinions on this issue, and they epitomize the dilemma of what to do when practice has become established without good evidence. And I agree completely that there's no high-quality evidence that pre-hospital treatment improves patient-oriented outcomes. And I'm as skeptical as anyone, and more than most, about the benefits of traditional spinal mobilization. At the same time, I think this case is unique and deserves a closer look at the kind of evidence that might be available. When we talk about spinal motion restriction, the patient-oriented outcome is really the absence of harm. And the harm, of course, is new or worsened neurologic deterioration as a result of additional trauma. In general, it's very difficult to demonstrate an absence. And I'd argue that in this case, it's impossible for a variety of reasons that might apply in different ways. So it might be difficult to ever provide the kind of high quality evidence that would say cervical collars are responsible for this level of improvement or that level of an absent harm. So what do we have in its place? There's a small but growing body of research that links pre-hospital or emergency department treatment of patients with spine injuries 
with their final outcomes. These studies don't overcome all of the limitations that apply in this case, but they provide better evidence than what we've had before, which are, tend to be case series and case studies from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. I'll mention that our group has a project underway to link the patients with injuries in our setting back to their pre-hospital treatment, and I'm really excited for that. Among studies that have been published, several have showed no neurologic deterioration or worse outcomes between comparison groups, whether these are before and after cohorts around a practice change, like removing long backboards or adopting soft collars, or looking at patients who might not have received treatment at all for whatever reason. Just in the last year, we did see an observational study come out of a trauma registry in Asia that claims to show that pre-hospital spinal mobilization is associated with favorable functional outcomes at discharge among a subgroup of patients with cervical spine injuries. I think there are a lot of questions around the methodology of that study, and it wouldn't qualify as high-quality evidence, but it shouldn't be ignored. So what do we do when there's no high-quality evidence for something like this, which is an ingrained part of practice? I think the conclusion is not to throw them out, but to take that skepticism and ask, are there some situations where they clearly don't provide a benefit? Are there situations where the harms are unacceptable? Are there other situations where we could use alternatives? And since about 2012, we've seen these questions being asked and a cautious and uneven retreat from previous standards. Today, in some jurisdictions, they don't apply any devices to low-risk low patients, but use a neck lanyard to signal the possibility of a spine injury. Other jurisdictions have transitioned to soft collars instead of the semi-rigid ones common here in North America. Your listeners are probably familiar with lots of local variations that make sense in their own settings. And I think we'll continue to see different services think about how to restrict motion based on underlying risk, on patient presentation, and on the circumstances of extrication and transport in individual cases, rather than continuing to apply the traditional one-size-fits-all approach. And the paper we've discussed today illustrates part of that process happening. Well, thanks for answering our five nerdy questions so thoroughly. So now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions, Neil and his co-authors, and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Yeah, we generally agree with the author's conclusions. So Chris, give me an SGEM bottom line. Patterns of spinal motion restriction are changing over time with reduced use of SMR and changing patient and practice characteristics. And how are you going to resolve the case you presented at the beginning of this episode? You decide to place the patient in a cervical collar and transport them lying at 30 degrees in semi-fowler's position, corresponding to local guidelines for an ambulatory patient with a potential C-spine injury. And how are you going to take this retrospective observational study and apply it clinically? I would say the exact type and benefits of spinal immobilization slash spinal motion restriction have not been fully elucidated at this point, and you should follow your local pre-hospital practices. And what are you going to tell the patient in the pre-hospital setting? I'd say you have a head trauma and there's a risk of having a bony neck injury. This risk is lower because you're walking. But to be cautious, we're going to place you in a cervical collar, ask you to limit your neck range of motion, and transport you to the hospital for further assessment as per our current protocol. 
Okay, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and last week's winner was Tim Kolosinek. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. He knew the first paramedic-level system in the United States to practice endotracheal intubation was Freedom House Ambulance. Chris, what's the question this week? This week's question is, who invented the cervical spine collar? Oh, that's a great question. So if you know the answer, then send an email to the SGEM at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive one of our new, cool, skeptical prizes. Now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this episode on spinal immobilization? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Neil and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Well, thank you, Chris, for doing another SGM hop. Uh, save the date, though, for Mission Impossible 7 Dead Reckoning Part 2, which is to be released on June 28, 2024. All right, two days after my birthday. I'll keep, it in, I'll, I'll keep it in my brain. Well, thank you, Neil, for coming on and talking nerdy with us about spinal immobilization. Thank you both for the invitation. And you're out there in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So you've got to give your best Canadian accent from Winnipeg, Manitoba for the SGM tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, eh? Talk to everyone next time. Have you all-